I don't know how many exactly of you are involved in a small group. I know a number of you are. Um, Sarah and I host a small group in our homes, on, uh, not just in our home, but last Sunday we were in our home on Sunday night, and as we were sharing dinner, we were talking just, you know, just like we do, just sharing life, and I have no idea how we got there, but we started talking about Six Band Bridge up the road, which I know is like the best advertisement ever for our small group. You're like, hey, we want to go. They talk about Six Band Bridge. Yeah, I know. That's just who we are. Um, and I don't know how we got there, but we started to ask, like, how did, that, how did that bridge get its name? Is it because of its length? Is it, what is it? And, and before long, before you knew it, someone had their phone out. It was like, hey, Siri, how did Six Band Bridge get its name? Not right now. We already know the answer. So um, would you believe that using their cell phone, we found an answer to why Six Band Bridge got its name? I mean, do you believe that? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Do you believe that? Well, you should, because we did. Uh, it's absolutely amazing what we can use these things for. Last night, I was, uh, was with a friend, and we were driving, and, and we were wanting to know the results of a recent basketball game. You know, it's March Madness, so what do we do? Hey, Siri, uh, who won the Notre Dame women's basketball game? Because Notre Dame women are the only ones that really matter. Sorry for all you, all you fans of, of men's basketball, if you want to call it that. Uh, but anyway, I mean, we could do amazing things with these phones. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to know how long Six Band Bridge was in Elkhart, and you, you didn't just know it, you'd have to just, like, live in perpetual ignorance of that exciting trivia fact. Or you'd have to wait till you bumped into someone who was like this fount of seemingly irrelevant knowledge. Like, there, there was just no, you couldn't have answers, like, right now, but, but now we we have fine-tuned the art of not needing to wait for anything. In the same small group, or maybe it was a week before, I don't know, recently, Sarah was telling um, some of the women in the group about her, her Instapot. It's this, it's this device she plugs into the wall. She can pull a frozen chicken out of the freezer, put it in the Instapot, and in like three seconds it's ready to eat. I mean, it's just absolute bye-bye crockpot. I don't even know why we have crockpots anymore. We've got the Instapot, like that, our food, no need to, no need to patiently wait. Have you ever thought about how much of our life, in how much, in how many different areas of our lives, we've eliminated the need for patience? I've been thinking about it this week, and there's more than I'll mention here, but just a few that kind of popped out to me. Um, uh, we have a new term for TV viewing habits new in the last five to ten years. It's called binge-watching. Are you familiar with the term binge-watching? <laughs> One hand over here, like, shot up in the air, like, yes, I want to go binge-watch now, Pastor. Be quiet. Yeah, I mean, because of streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and others, there's no need to patiently wait from week to week for your favorite TV series to release the next episode. Netflix now releases them a whole series at a time. You just have to wait a year till the, the, the next season comes out, and then you can take a weekend and watch 24 episodes back to back to back to back. We call it binge-watching. No, no need to be patient for cliffhangers. <laughs> Amen. That's right. You got it, Caspian. Or uh, speaking of binging, how many of you have been through a drive through lane at a fast food place recently? Okay, fewer than I expected. Even better, uh, you're not being honest. Have you noticed... They have gone from one drive-through lane to two drive-through lanes at fast food restaurants. 
you no longer have to patiently wait behind the person in their car who can't figure out how to roll down their window or who's been to this place every day for the last three weeks and still doesn't know what's on the menu that they want. You just zoom around them. Maybe you'll get lucky and and your speaker will work first and then you can zoom past them and, and go pay and wait five minutes at the delivery window. I mean, it's just all over our culture. We have eliminated the need for patience. Where uh, Pastor Andrea announced we're starting a new Sunday school class here in April. And so to, to make room for that and make sure that we've got adequate space, we've been moving some things around in rooms. And as we were doing it this week, um, it occurred to me, uh, we have Christmas trees in a room that we use at Christmas time that have the lights built in. I know these aren't new, but you know, how many of you have these in your home? No need to untangle a, a gnarly string of lights in November. You just flop down the branches, plug in the tree, and voila, it's lit. And when I was growing up, I used to hear pastors say, if you want to see how patient a man is, give him a string of used Christmas lights. No need for that anymore. I'm good. Clip. It's on. We have done away with the need for patience. And I like it. I'll just be honest. I like it. And as far as I'm concerned, it can touch more. You don't have to come here to hear a good sermon, which might be debatable today anyway. You can stay home. You don't even have to get out of bed. You can surf the net and find a, find a million podcasts to listen to. There's no need to drive and be patient dealing with people. I mean, it's all over every part of our life. Unfortunately, I think there's some drawbacks. And I think one of the greatest drawbacks of the insatiable drive we have to eliminate from our lives any need for patience biggest drawback is that it impacts the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because as we do everything we can to advance technology so that we don't have to wait for anything, we actually forget how to develop patience. And the work of the Lord in our life always requires patience. Becoming a a big Christian, this is what we're all about as a church, developing big Christians who who know Jesus and and, and are growing in Jesus and are going on mission with Jesus. Developing that in, in life, growing disciples, requires patience. And we seem to have eliminated interesting that uh, even if we go back a couple thousand years as we read James chapter 5 today, patience, the need for patience, is one that keeps bubbling to the top. And as we read from James chapter 5 today, we're going to see that, uh, that this call, this urge, this request to be patient is reiterated over and over by James today. I'm going to be reading from James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Follow along if you have your Bibles ready. Pastor James says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, and already we notice a difference. We're through the hard part of the letter. No more calling us adulterous murderers. No more saying things like, come on now. We're we're back to Pastor James um, speaking very brotherly. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're listening. So in these verses we just read, Pastor James continually repeats with us, uh, pleads with us to be patient. It's, a, it's an encouragement, a, an admonition, a request, at least four times as I count them in the passage, uh, that he comes back to be patient. He starts with, be patient, the Lord is coming. Be patient, the Lord is coming. And James isn't the only New Testament writer uh, to encourage us to be patient because of the pending return of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's over 300 references to the return of Christ. Catch that, 300. That's one every 13 verses on average. The New Testament writers are constantly coming back to this reality that Christ is going to return for his children. It's not the only work of the, of the Lord that the New Testament focuses on. I, the New Testament looks at the, the working of God and kind of breaks it down into to three big picture works. Uh, uh, the New Testament writers tell us constantly, time and time again, within verses sometimes of his return, uh, of the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save us from sin and death. And that's just the, the first part of the equation. We see as we read especially the Pauline epistles, but it's not just in, in Paul's letters. We, we see the work of the Holy Spirit to save us from ourselves through the ongoing, sanctifying, making holy work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as individuals and as a community of believers, his work to save us from ourselves and make us more like Jesus Christ. And the New Testament writers constantly, like I said, 300 times, come back to the saving work of Jesus Christ when we'll all be complete. And he'll come back to claim for himself his own. And, and time will end and, and we'll be together in, in the recreated heaven and the recreated earth, designed the way that God wanted it from the beginning. The New Testament writers are constantly saying, believers, history is linear. We're moving from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the consummation when what he started there, what he's doing in you now through his Holy Spirit is complete. And your 
are in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. And there's a reason to be patient. It's worth waiting for. Listen to how John describes it in, uh, in Revelation chapter 21. This is John's vision of what it will be like once our patience has been complete. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So much for fish being in heaven, I guess. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There's great hope, great encouragement, great motivation to be patient because the Lord is coming back for us. And the things we're dealing with now be gone. We won't need to do men's group to grieve together and mourn together and find God's comfort and peace. Gone. No more mourning. No more death. We won't have young couples who are trying to adopt and waiting patiently. Gone. There won't be questions about flooding and political reports. And gone. James says, be patient culmination of your faith, of the work that Jesus has started in you and is carrying on in you. It's coming. But it's not just the, the event. It's not just heaven or eternity that we're to be patient for. For, for. for followers of Jesus Christ, it's not something for which we're patient. It's someone. And it's glorious and wonderful as verse 4 is in Revelation 21. It's verse 3 that we long for. When God is among his people, and there is no doubt in anyone's mind that he's our God and we're his people. James says, be patient, for the Lord's return is near. And then it reminds us that uh, this patience, it's not just about what God's going to do sometime in the future, but it's also about what he's doing in us now. But it requires patience to see it. James says, be patient. The Lord is working in you. Now make no mistake, the Lord is coming back and he will do some fantastic works. But there's, there's work in the meantime needs to be done. There's, there's still the working of the Holy Spirit in our life, and it requires patience to see this. And to help us understand that, James points to a farmer. Farming is just about the most patient work mankind can do. 
you, did you catch James' references to the, to the rains? He, he talks about the early rains and the, the later rains. Those of you who have been in the Holy Land, did, did you learn about the rains and when they come? Pastor Joel has a ton of experience in the, the, the Holy Land. I should probably let him do this part. Um, my understanding is the early rains come in what we would call fall, October, November, and, and that's when the seed has been planted, and so the rains help the seed begin to, to germinate, and, and, and it starts the work for which the farmer is hoping and praying and, and working towards. And then the farmer waits, and he waits, and there's things he can do. He can keep away weeds, and he can keep away pests and vermin, but ultimately... All he can do is wait because the work that's happening isn't up to him. But then the second rain season comes. This is, this is in our spring, April and May. It should be starting soon. And, and, and here the rains take what is maturing and helps it to grow into full maturity. And it's as, it's as if Pastor James is saying to us, God started a work in you when you chose to become followers of Jesus Christ. You were baptized. That water began a work in you. And there's things you need to do now. You need to keep vermin and pests away. You, you need to keep thorns from growing up and choking out the work of God in your life. But ultimately, all you can do is be patient and allow the Holy Spirit to have his way with you, to have his way in you. And that work of the Holy Spirit becomes the ongoing reign in our life where as we're maturing, the Holy Spirit comes along and, and continues to fuel our growth. Truth be told, though, farming, patience, watching Christians mature is difficult. There's no shortcuts to spiritual growth. It's a long, arduous task. And in our own lives, it becomes more tedious. It's harder to be patient when the Holy Spirit is working through difficulties. When, 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 uh, when your body and your mind are failing and, and, and they just, you just can't count on them like you used to be able to. When, when people who you thought you could trust are accusing you of things that aren't true. Uh, when, when the people in your life who are supposed to help you grow and change pull a Nebuchadnezzar and they go too far and they crush your spirit. Or when, uh, regardless of what you change, regardless of who or what comes in and out of your life, and there's still just these dysfunctional patterns that you can't name, you know they're there because you can see that you're, there's not growth the way that you want, but you don't know what they are. There's all kinds of these and other difficulties that, that come into people's lives and comes into the lives of followers, and it's hard to be patient and the, the easy thing is to think that, uh, that these difficulties that I'm facing, 
They must, be, they must be God's punishment. I must not be pleasing to God. I must not be doing something right. I must be, uh, I, I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not reading the Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm, I, I'm thinking impure thoughts too much, uh, whatever the case may be. But for the follower of Christ, the New Testament promises us difficulties, hard times in our lives are not punitive. God is not punishing us. God's posture towards those who are in Christ is acceptance and love. All the punishment we could ever deserve has already been paid at the cross. Jesus Christ took it all on him. James says, be patient through the difficult times. You're not being punished. God's Spirit is doing a work in you. God may be disciplining you. There may be, there may be hard times because you've made boneheaded decisions and, and, and the Lord in his grace is going to help you to understand the pain of those. But that's not punishment. Hebrews says the Father disciplines those he loves. James says be patient. The Lord is working in you. The Holy Spirit is working in you. His work is not done. He's continuing to work in you to, to create in you the righteousness that he already sees when he looks at you because of Jesus Christ. And then James turns to what might be the hardest part of spiritual growth, the greatest need for patience when the Holy Spirit works through other people to sanctify us. James says, be patient can we do a little group activity today? Now, some of you are going to resist this because you would never let your kids do this, and your pastor is going to ask you to do it just for illustration. Do you guys all know what a hard sigh is? <sighs> oh, yeah, a lot of you do. Can we do that together? Can we do a hard sigh? <sighs> okay, now, for effect, I'm not going to be able to see it. Um, do you guys know what an eye roll is? Yeah, I tell my kids, if you roll your eyes at me, be, be ready to get them back because I'm rolling them right back at you. Can you do an eye roll? Would that be okay? Can we just roll our eyes? While we do the hard sigh. If you really want to get to it, like roll your whole head. Some of you are way too good at that. Some of you have a pastor who's way too good at it. Okay, what's the point here? This, uh, this word that James uses in verse 9, when he tells us not to grumble against each other, we don't really need the word grumble. The meaning of the word is this, like this sigh of irritation. James says, brothers and sisters, don't the approach, when that's the posture, when that's the response we have to brothers and sisters in Christ, our grumbling, our hard sighing, our eye rolling shows at least two things about our own spiritual growth. First of all, it says, uh, I forget that, that I have growth. I have 
when I grumble or hard sigh or roll my eyes or get frustrated or irritated with you because of all your shortcomings and all your mistakes and all the areas for growth you have. And when I let that come out as complaining and grumbling, I'm saying, I don't have those areas of growth. God's work in me is done. Or, yeah, I've got room for growth, but it's not nearly as annoying as so-and-so's. Ugh, can you believe? Oh. James says, no. No, none of us is, 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 is uh, completed. The, the Holy Spirit isn't completed in any of us. We're all in process. If we were to, to somehow, I don't know how we do it, but if we were to somehow select the most holy, righteous person in our congregation, however we would determine that, even that person would, would, uh, would admit, God's, God's still working in me. There's still ways I fall short. I mean, the, the work of God may have, been, may have gone on for years in their lives, and we may look at their lives and say, I don't think that person ever sins. But the truth is we all continue to need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and whether other people see it or not, God's work in none of us is ever done until the day we meet the Lord. This is what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's not just encouragement to don't give up and don't get frustrated and don't walk away from your faith because God's still working on you. It's also a subtle reminder that God's going to continue needing to work in you and in me until the day of the Lord's return. When When I hard sigh, when I grumble, as the English says. I'm saying, I think I'm further down the road than that person is, and it really annoys me that they're not coming along. But even worse, he says, I've forgotten that I have need for the grace and mercy of the Lord. I've forgotten that I have need to extend the grace and mercy as I've James warns us about in the second part of verse 9 here. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I think James is pointing over his shoulder and saying, do you remember that story my half-brother Jesus told? The one where the guy owed a debt he could never pay. He owed it to the king, and, and when the king called him to appear before and settle accounts, the guy said, oh, king, I can't do it. I can't pay it. There's just no way. In three lifetimes, I couldn't repay this debt. And he deserved to be thrown in jail and the key thrown away. He's going to make license plates for the rest of his day to put dents in this debt. But the merciful king forgave his debt. Just like that. Poof. Wrote it off the books. It's gone. The guy owes nothing. And as Jesus tells the story, he walks out of the king's court and he's on his way home when he encounters another guy who owes him like a Starbucks coffee. And he's like, hey, you remember that money you owe me? I'd like it back now. It's time. Now it's time to pay it. And the guy couldn't pay it. And so he like shakes him down and throws him in jail and demands every penny be paid. The king, <laughs> the king got word of this and calls the original servant whose debt was forgiven back in front of him. He says, what are you doing? 
I've given you more mercy than you could ever deserve, than you could ever imagine or repay. And yet you grumble and complain against this brother who owes you a pittance? You see, when I grumble and complain against you, when I raise accusations against you, when I, uh, you know, hard sigh and roll my eye, forgotten how much God forgave me. I don't truly grasp the mercy of God of which I'm a recipient. I have lost sight of, or I I never knew what it cost God to forgive me. I never felt the weight of my sin and the glory of its release when it was forgiven. James says, don't grumble against each other because the judge is standing at the door. And we are not that awesome. None of us are. We've all needed the mercy of God. And it cost him everything. And the least we can do is to be patient with one another. And then James moves on and he illustrates this compassion and the mercy of the Lord. And he does it through the story of Job. How many of you remember the story of Job? For those of you who don't, who are a little rusty, I'm going to bring you up to speed, but you're going to see this is the most ironic story he could have picked from the Old Testament to illustrate patience and compassion and mercy. As the story goes, the angels came uh, into the throne room of God. Apparently this is something that happens regularly in heaven to give their reports. And and on this occasion, Satan, uh, you know, the devil... Uh, our accuser, his name in Hebrew, Hasatan, actually means the accuser. The accuser comes with them, and, and God sees Satan. He says, hey, Satan, what you been up to? Now, first of all, anytime God asks a question, listen up. Because God doesn't need to ask questions, right? He's all-knowing. He doesn't ask questions to learn things. When God asks a question, it's because there's something in darkness that needs to be brought into light. So he says, hey, Satan, what you been up to? And Satan says, oh, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And, and God brags on Job a little bit, this righteous man. And Satan says, listen, listen, God, he's only righteous because you've given him a cushy life. He has everything he could ever want and need. Life's perfect. Of course he's going to praise you when his life is perfect. But if hardship comes into his life, if you curse, if you let me mess with him, he'll curse you and die. God says, all right. Tell you what, Satan, you can do whatever you want, except you cannot touch Job. Can't touch his body, can't touch his life. Everything else is fair game. So Satan leaves the presence of the Lord. And over the course of chapter 1, we see that Job's life takes a radical downturn. The market crashes, thieves break in and steal, and his wealth is gone. There's natural disasters and his kids, gone. Even the family animals, gone. The only thing Job is left with is, is his wife. And quite frankly, he'd have been better off if Satan had taken her and left the family gone. And so Satan goes back to God. And again, God says, Satan, what you been up to? You've been going to and fro throughout the earth. And, and, uh, and, and uh, while Satan is reporting to God what's happened, 
Job is on earth at the end of chapter 1. It says that Job looks around at everything he's lost and he falls to the ground in worship. Job is singing, blessed be your name, while Satan is back in front of God saying, look at your guy. I took everything from him. Actually, God said to Satan, look at my guy. You took everything from him, and he's still worshiping me. And Satan says, yeah, of course. He only cares about himself. If you would let me mess with him, if you'd let me mess with him, I can guarantee you he'll curse you to your face. And God says, fine. Fine, Satan. You can do anything you want to him except take his life. You cannot have his life. Everything else is fair game. Now before we go any further with the story, catch this. Whatever you have gone through, whatever you are going through, it's only within God's parameters. God sets the boundaries for what happens in our lives. Nothing gets to us that God hasn't already approved, that he hasn't already allowed, that he doesn't already have plans to work through. So Satan returns to earth, and uh, he covers Job's body from the, the soles of his foot to the top of his head with painful sores. It hurts so much that the only thing Job could do is sit in the ashes of everything he's lost with a broken plate scraping trying to find freedom and relief from the agony. And his wife says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. See what I mean? He'd be better off with a family dog. And Job says, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Should we expect good from God and not bad? And then for like the next 23 to 25 chapters, Job has to sit and listen as his friends come in and make things more difficult. And, and they go on and on and on about how this is his fault. Clearly this has happened in his life because he fell short, he sinned, he offended God, he did something wrong. It's so bad that at one point Job says to them, you are miserable, comfortable comforters, all of you. You're horrible. And in the last five chapters of the book of Job, we, we see God and Job have this face-to-face -face encounter. And we see God, uh, in, in Job's brokenness, God reveals himself to Job. And he brings comfort, and he brings understanding, and, and God makes it known to Job and to his friends that this wasn't Job's fault, that Job had done nothing wrong, that, that God was working in him. And, and most importantly, God makes it clear that in the midst of all of this, God was near to Job. James says, be patient, for the Lord is near. Not just near as in his return, but near as in present. He is with you. And, and very few of us in here could say my life is anything like Job's. For most of us, we've had difficulties. We've had boneheads in our life who's made things harder. But truth be told, our life is nothing like Job. Some of us in here would say, you know what, my story is a little bit like Job. And if you heard it, you would, you would realize the agony I've lived with. But it doesn't matter which camp we're in. The story 
story of Job helps us to understand that the Lord is near to us in the midst of everything we're facing. He's not moved away from us. He's not turned his back on us. He's not on his 15-year coffee break from being sovereign over the universe. God is with us in the midst of whatever we're facing. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Be patient. Persevere. Endure. The Lord is near. And you can't see it now, perhaps. Your face is pressed up against it. And all you see is rough, jagged edges. That doesn't make any sense to you. But the promise of the gospel is that God is one day going to reveal himself and what you see now just as brokenness and jagged edges that don't fit together when the Lord takes your hand and when he walks you back, it's going to reveal a glorious stained glass window. And the glory of God is going to shine through that brokenness. It's going to shine through the pieces you thought didn't fit together and made no sense. with you in the midst of your pain and of your suffering. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Be patient. He's still working in you and in your brothers and sisters. So let's be patient with each other. Be patient. He's near. Now that's easy for Pastor James to say. It's easy for me to say. But how do we do it? Especially since we don't have Christmas lights to practice with anymore. Like, how do we develop patience our lives. I want to suggest three ways as we wrap up. First of all, consider your present actions in light of eternity. Consider what you're doing now in light of what's going to happen for the rest of time as we can't even imagine it. Jesus is coming soon. This soon may not be in our lifetime. It may not be soon like we would hope, but he is coming. So whatever time you have, and it's short, you may live 90, you may live short in the span of eternity. So do what you have now. Do what you can now so that it won't haunt you for all of eternity. Don't don't spend your time here complaining about how bad everything is. Instead, find reasons to thank God for his sustaining strength. Use the resources he's given you. And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking time and abilities and, and relationships and influence and whatever God has given you. Use it in a way to impact eternity. Be intentional about that because it doesn't happen on accident. And he didn't give it to you just so you could be more comfortable. Ask yourselves if you really want to say those words about another person. Because once you say them, you can't take them back. They're going to reverberate a lot longer than the few seconds it takes you to utter them. And someday you may even regret them and you won't be able to take them back. Extend mercy to those who need understand that your work in this life, your wealth in this life, your words in this life can all be leveraged to make an eternal impact. But you've got to choose to do that. You've got to look to eternity, not to here and now. Make a list of specific changes that God is working in you. Make a list of specific changes. There's an old hymn. Uh, when count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Same kind of idea here. But instead of just blessings, actually make a list, take an inventory, and write down where I'm at now. How is that different than a month ago, than a year ago, than four years ago, than, than 10 years ago? Make a list 
of what God has been doing in your life? How have you changed? I had a friend come up to me a few weeks ago before church and said, Pastor Earl, I finished reading through the whole Bible for the first time. That's awesome. That's incredible. That's a change. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Are you less pa- or more patient now than if you're less patient? That's a whole, you just rewind the sermon. But are you more patient now than you used to be? Are you, uh, uh, have you stepped out of your comfort zone and you're no longer afraid to pray in front of people? Are you in a small group now where you refuse to later for whatever reason? Some of you here would say, you know, like two months ago, I wasn't even a Christian. What's God doing in your life? Make a list, take an inventory, and thank God for it. And then finally, learn a prayer that will help you remember that God is near. Learn a prayer that will help you remember that God is near. Because whether you face anything to the caliber that Joel, the Job excuse me, faced or not, the truth is for most of us there's times when we just forget that the Lord is near. Several years ago as I was uh, working with my counselor, working through some, some stuff, he, uh, he said to me, you know Earl, I, I, think you need to, I think you need to memorize a prayer that when this stuff comes haunting, you can pray and it'll help you focus on the fact that God is with you in the midst of this giving you victory. And so, and so I did that. I, I learned a prayer. This is called the Jesus Prayer. Um, I think we're going to put it up. It, uh, it originates in, what is it, Luke 18, where the, the tax collector and the Pharisee go in to pray. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner turned saint. We, this isn't, I'm not encouraging you to repeat a mantra like how to have a better life now. I'm encouraging you to learn a prayer or learn some prayers that in the midst of hard times can refocus you on who is your Lord, that there is a God in heaven who is with you, that, 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 that he's not just the king of the universe, but that he's the son of God who, who gave his life for you and, and that you need him. You need not only his saving mercy, but you need his sustaining mercy to get through whatever this difficult time is. And there's power in acknowledging that that without the mercy of the Lord, I'm a saint. But the rest of the story is, because of the mercy of the Lord, excuse me, I'm a sinner without the mercy of the Lord, but because of the mercy of the Lord, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. I'm a holy one, I'm set apart. Memorize a prayer, learn some prayers that will help you to focus on God's nearness. This one comes from, um, uh, what was the holiday we celebrated last Sunday? Uh, St. Patrick. This comes from St. Patrick. Uh, He said, Lord, be with me this day, within me to purify me, above me to draw me up, beneath me to sustain me, before me to lead me, behind me to restrain me, around me to protect me. Be patient. How? By memorizing some prayers that you can say that will help you remember the Lord is near. There's all kinds of them through Christian history. Great prayers have been handed down to us but none top the ones that are given to us in Scripture. So how about some scriptural prayers? The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. How many times have I prayed that with people? In the midst of loss and mourning. The Lord just does something. Psalm 139. It's a, if you memorize that, kudos. But there's great, great sections. Search me, O Lord, and know my inward thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Luke twenty two forty two, our own Lord's prayer. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. We could go on and on. Ephesians 3, 
Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, so it's written in the second person, but you can easily reword it to the first person. Of course, the Lord's Prayer, the perfect prayer, the model prayer, where we acknowledge that we have a God who's near and who has a desire and that we need him and that he can deliver us. James says, be patient. The trick is, maybe the bait and switch, I don't know, preach a sermon like this, we listen to sermons like this, and we think, okay, I can do it, I can build patience. But the Holy Spirit says, above all, patience is my work in you. If I'm working in your life, patience will be a byproduct. So partner with me, come alongside with me, God would say, and together, let's build patience in your life. I'm going to ask if you would stand. And what I'd like to do is close today by, by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we all have different versions memorized, so let's just read it off the screen, and this will be our closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can we bless one another? May you be patient. May you know the Lord's presence. May the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with God's grace.